Welcome to the Maximus Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cam Sapa. As a clinical psychologist, medical school professor, and CEO, I specialize in helping men be better in mind, body, and masculinity. On this podcast, I interview extraordinary men as a clinician would, hearing their come up stories of how they became the men that they are today, and having them share their secrets of actionable advice on how to look, feel, and perform your best. Welcome everyone to our Maximus podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have uh, one of Maximus's medical advisors, Dr. Matt Coward, here with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Cam. Absolutely. So l- let me do an intro on you because you have one of the most impressive bios uh, I've seen, and I can say that as a fellow medical school professor. So uh, Dr. Matt Coward is a professor of urology at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. He received his medical degree with distinction from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School of Medicine, where he later completed his residency in urological surgery. He is currently the director of male reproductive medicine and surgery at UNC Fertility, and he is the fellowship director for the UNC Men's Health Fellowship, which provides training for future leaders in male fertility treatment. Dr. Coward's clinical practice offers comprehensive men's reproductive and sexual health services, and he is an expert in men's health and sexual medicine, specializing in male infertility, vasectomies, and microsurgical vasectomy reversals. Yeah, that that really sums it up. (laughs) Done a lot. So I'd love to hear the backstory of how did you get uh, interested in urology, men's health, and sexual medicine? Yeah, I mean, I always say uh, urology finds you. You don't, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, when when you go through medical school, you never think that you're going to be a urologist. And then mm. one day you, you're kind of thinking about it and and, and if it finds you. So, um, yeah, I remember telling my parents about it initially and like almost being embarrassed because it wasn't like a cool specialty like cardiology or something mm. that they were going to know was, what you know, uh, was exciting. So, uh, you know, most urologists uh, love the patients and uh, and the the quality of life issues that we treat. Mm. It's a surgical subspecialty, so we're all surgeons. And when we think about what what specialties we're going to go into, if you're thinking about specializing, uh, there are just a handful of surgical specialties to uh, to choose from. And uh, and, and urology uh, covers the full gamut of uh, of kids to 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 aging adults, men and women. Um, I focus in men's health, but that's not what initially attracted me to urology. It was robotic surgery, uh, a ton of endoscopic surgery, open surgery, uh, and then a lot of minor procedures as well, an office-based surgical practice, which is ultimately what I ended up doing um, in the area of, uh, of men's health and reproductive medicine. Uh, but you know, treat, talking to patients about quality of life issues, really get to know people uh, there's not a corollary like with cardiac surgery and, and cardiology, like a urologist takes care of the patient in the office, does the mm-hmm. surgical procedures, sees them back, sees them back the next year and the next year. And, and so I have a lot of patients that I've been seeing for many years. And that's one of the neat things about urology is really uh, relationships with your patients. And so those are the kind of that's the short answer, I would say. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think in, you know, my specialty psychology and psychiatry, uh, you know, the long-term relationships are absolutely important as well. Um, it's kind of interesting. We had Dr. Eugene Shippen, one of our other medical advisors on, and he was talking about how little um, training actually there is in medical education regarding hormones. It was kind of interesting to me that, you know, uh, like where does andrology fall into? Is it endocrinology? Is it urology? And it seems like it's kind of more, more urologists are actually our advisors like yourself. So, um, can you tell us a little bit how, uh, about that and how you got, uh, educated and interested in hormone function? Yeah. So I do the, the medical school lecture on this and they give me one hour. Uh, <laughs> so that's, that's what the, the four years of medical training gets Amazing. from, from male reproductive endocrine function. Um, they do a whole block on endocrinology and in, in their second year, uh, but they don't, really focus on male reproductive physiology and endocrinology much, Uh, you know, that block focuses on the thyroid and, and other more important, uh, uh, glands. Um, but uh, as far as andrology, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't fit well. Like my, my lecture is actually in the, in the reproductive section, which is like mostly female stuff. And then I talk about, you know, erectile dysfunction and, 
uh, low testosterone and male infertility and like basically my entire medical specialty plus some in, in one hour. And that's, uh, you know, medical students just don't get a lot of training in this area. And that's, right. that, that is part of the problem. Uh, there's a lot to learn in a short amount of time for students. Um, so, you know, we do our best when we have our opportunity to, uh, you know, to teach. Um, but certainly I wish there was more. I mean, the way I got interested in it was, you know, I mean, I was a urologist first mm -hmm. before I was a male reproductive specialist. And, you know, and that's a year of general surgery, four years of urology. And like at some point in the middle of the urology training, I decided I was going to, uh, uh, focus in academics and then men's health. And that's an extra year of fellowship. Right. So there's only about 10 fellowships uh, across the country where you can actually get this training. Um, and that's about how many uh, specialists we have coming out every year. Um, yeah. We have one of the training programs here at UNC, but there's, there's very few uh, male reproductive specialists that are, are actually entering the workforce every year. And, and that creates a problem with access to care. Uh, there's just not a lot of good reproductive specialists out there. And as, as it turns out, there's a lot of people practicing reproductive medicine that, you know, maybe are just sort of barely doing it like in these men's shot clinics and, mm -hmm. uh, and low T clinics. Uh, and that's, that's a real problem because there, it, there is a, there's a market for, uh, that's, that's right for, uh, uh, you know, making a lot of money in this area. And there's just not enough specialists out there. So right. it's uh, patients are, um, you know, sometimes, you know, behind the eight ball trying to figure out like who's the best, you know, better to go to or the mm -hmm. best place. And those are the places they're being directly marketed to. Right. Uh, and it, it puts them in a situation where they're not always getting the best medical care, you know, for their, for their hormone issues. Yeah, absolutely. As someone who's involved in, um, uh, medical resident education. I, I see that need that you describe as well. I understand you actually trained with Dr. Larry Lipschultz. It seems like a lot of the folks, in fact, in the field are essentially like descendants of his lineage. And, and now like you are passing it on by becoming the trainers. So he's, uh, he's definitely um, the best. And, and, uh, and so I, I love him uh, like a father. Um, I call him the grandfather of our field. Uh, I think he's trained upwards of a hundred uh, fellows and there's only like maybe 200 of us out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, if, if you look around, it ends up being about half of us either train with Lipschultz or train with someone who trained with Lipschultz. So, mm -hmm. uh, he, uh, he definitely is one of the, um, uh, you know, pioneers of our, of our field. And, and I, I think about him almost every day and, and every time I see him, I, I thank him for, for what he's done for our field and for me. Yeah, it's, it's great that he's passed his knowledge along and now you're doing the same thing with your uh, residents and fellows and and also as an advisor to our company. Um, on that note, I'd, I'd love to hear how you decided to become a medical advisor to Maximus. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was an easy decision because uh, I really believed in uh, what you're doing. Um, I think uh, patients need this kind of service. Uh, it's, uh, it, so it's a, it's a great service to patients. Um, there's a great need for it, as I mentioned. Uh, and, uh, and I think, um, in the end, there's, there's going to be a lot of patients that are going to be helped by service like this, uh, getting appropriate medical care, uh, for, uh, for, for their hormone imbalance. Uh, so it, it's something that's close to home, uh, mm -hmm. something I see every day, uh, patients, you know, either being mismanaged, uh, getting inappropriate treatment, uh, or just simply not having the access to care. Uh, and what Maximus does is it addresses the access to care uh, by giving uh, very uh, appropriate um, and uh, well-researched uh, uh, medical treatments uh, for these conditions. And, uh, and so I, I really feel like it's a great company and, uh, and provides a great service to patients. Thank you. And I think you helped make it a great company. I mean, one of the gaps that I saw in the, the real world was exactly what you're talking about. There are really great academic specialists like you that have all the proper credentialing and training. And, and maybe there's some, even some great guys in private practice who sort of learned along the way through their clinical experience. Um, but they're not very accessible because as, as you point out, there's maybe a few dozen, maybe a hundred or two of those folks out there. Um, and so how do we take sort of the best from academic medicine and specialty care and make it available to a mainstream audience 
and have you help develop the clinical guidelines, provide input on the treatment protocols, et cetera, so that, you know, people don't feel like they have to go to just like a, a you know, a, a pop-up shop and get sort of, uh, you know, substandard care. And I think that's the beauty of telemedicine is you can, you can sort of, uh, scale, you know, special specialists, even though there's only a few of them, but have them train a wider array of clinicians and make sure that that high bar of evidence-based care is disseminated uh, very well. So no, why don't we actually dig- totally agree. Di- thank you. Um, uh, why don't we dig into it? I'd love for you to educate our audience about testosterone. So like one of the common questions that we get is what is a good level of testosterone and, and what causes whether someone is low or high? Well, my feeling on a good level is the level that makes you feel good. Mm. Uh, so, um, you know, and that, that may sound backwards, but, um, you know, if, if people feel good at 350, then that's a great level for them. I think like chasing a number is, is probably not the best approach. Um, but when people don't feel well, when they have symptoms of low testosterone, fatigue, low libido, erectile dysfunction, uh, and, uh, and, and do find that their testosterone is low. Uh, I think it's appropriate that they, they treat and with, uh, with an improvement in the number, typically you see an improvement in the symptom. Mm-hmm. However, the symptom is what we're chasing, not the number. So like if someone feels better and they're, they reached a level of 500, I'm happy with that. If they feel better and they're at five, if they don't feel better and they're at 450, then, you know, maybe there's some room to go up. Um, it's a very wide range. It's the, I typically tell patients 300 to 800 is normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, um, you know, a variety of different ranges. Labs have a range, right. uh, guidelines have ranges, uh, you know, the, um, but the best, the best way is to, is to just understand that we're not all built the same. And some people are, are good at 400 and some people are good at 600 and, uh, and it's also age-based as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, the younger you are, uh, the higher your level will be. Um, the higher your libido will be, the high, better your erections will be. Uh, you know, the testosterone is typically going to be better uh, in, in younger men, and it decreases as we get older. Uh, and then we compensate for it. You know, either it becomes our new normal uh, or uh, we learn how to adjust to you know, not having as strong of erections or as frequent of erections or as strong of a sex drive. And, and so sometimes it's about expectation management as well, as far as like what a patient, you know, expects that their function will be. Um, but, uh, I, I feel like, I feel like I might be missing a, a question you asked me. was that, did I cover what you asked or was yes. there another one? And, in and there? I think there was, uh, the other, the last part of the question is, is what have you seen are the inputs in terms of whether someone is low or high? Uh, like what are the factors? What are, what are the, the determinants of low versus high? So you mentioned one of them, which is age, right? That obviously younger men have higher testosterone, tends to decline with age. Uh, one of the known factors that we know that's, that's the reason for that is obviously the increase in obesity mal- metabolic syndrome that causes sort of a decline. I was curious if there's other things that you've seen in your practice that may be causing a, uh, you know, suppression of, of testosterone or helps restore it. Yeah. I mean, there certainly, I think obesity, uh, is probably the most important, uh, cause of low testosterone that I'm seeing in young men. Uh, another important, uh, cause for, for low T would be, uh, sleep problems, mm. uh, sleep dysfunction, sleep apnea, uh, insomnia. Um, and then related to sleep would be men who work shifts, night shifts, nurses who work three or four nights a week and that kind of thing that throws off their circadian rhythm. So, so any work related or sleep related problem that throws off your circadian rhythm will We'll throw off your testosterone signaling. I mean, it's important to like, maybe we should back up and just talk mm-hmm. a little bit about primary versus secondary yes, hypogonadism. Please. So primary hypogonadism is testicular problems. So those are patients with history of chemotherapy, loss of a testicle from an accident or from a cancer. Um, uh, uh, sometimes a varicocele uh, can cause a primary testicular dysfunction, but uh, uh, there can be genetic causes of uh testicular atrophy or where the testicles are small and don't, don't actually produce a lot of uh, testosterone. Kleinfelter syndrome would be a, a common cause. And that'd be a man with smaller testicles who 
might have a very early onset of symptoms of low testosterone, like in their early 20s. Um, and then there's, so that's primary, and then there's mm -hmm. secondary testosterone, uh, hypogonadism. So secondary hypogonadism, we call hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, which is where the signaling hormones, LH and FSH, are low as well as the testosterone. Mm -hmm. And that's almost everything else. So if it's not a testicular yeah. problem, if it's from side effects from medicine, uh, anything running interference in the hormone system, uh, issues with circadian rhythm, uh, uh, diabetes and other uh, chronic uh, medical comorbidities. Uh, these are things that can suppress the signaling hormones, which will in turn decrease your testosterone uh, production. And, um, and then there's iatrogenic causes like men who have experimented with testosterone or testosterone related products, workout right. supplements, energy drinks, um, uh, men who've taken anabolic steroids, like if they played college sports and took a cycle of steroids, will will end up having some hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. And sometimes I'll see that in in kind of mid twenties uh, men who are otherwise well androgenized. You know, mm -hmm. hair on their face, muscles on their arms. Clearly, they're not low testosterone men. Right. You know, a low testosterone you know person with primary hypogonadism is going to have like absent chest hair you know, sparse facial hair, mm -hmm. uh, and, and tend to have a, a lanky body or, you know, sometimes even a gonicoid, uh, body habitus. So like almost slightly feminine, uh, mm -hmm. body, but, a, a, an androgenized male, uh, in their mid twenties who looks like they have normal testosterone, uh, probably doesn't have true hypogonadism, but may have secondary hypogonadism, which is where the signaling is off. Mm -hmm. And those men sometimes can, can, get a lot of improvement with, uh, with drugs that actually, uh, block those receptors, uh, and, and raise the signals. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that, by the way, um, th there was someone actually online who was talking about how they experimented with SARM selective androgen receptor modulators in their early twenties, which basically function as oral anabolic steroids and noticed essentially hypogonadism that developed, uh, as a result of that and had to sort of like eventually go on TRT. Um, and I think it's an important message to share with our audience because a lot of people are experimenting um, with this stuff, thinking that it's consequence free, and it may not be. Right? Um, there, there is obviously post cycle therapies and other things that that people can do to recover, but it's not really guaranteed. And and given the lack of uh, pharmacological purity and quality assurance with a lot of these substances that are people are getting uh, on the under, underground, unfortunately, uh, we, we we don't really understand what it's sort of doing to our bodies. Um, so I, I think that's an important message to share. Um, you also mentioned the pharmacological side of things. So um, when you're talking about the difference between primary and secondary hypogonadism, I think one of the increasing views in the clinical community is that essentially TRT should be um, first-line treatment for primary hypogonadism, but for secondary hypogonadism, maybe it shouldn't be, it's, it's, it's often over-prescribed. Um, so do you share that opinion? And if so, you know, how should people start to approach the treatment of secondary hypogonadism? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I try to think about it as like, what's the deficient issue mm. or do we have a deficiency in production uh, or do we have a deficiency of uh, signaling? Mm -hmm. And so that's the difference in primary. So primary would be a deficiency in production. Let's mm -hmm. say you lost your testicles in an accident there, you're, you're low T and, and there's, there's nothing to make T if you were to give a higher signal. Right. So those men need testosterone. So definitely primary testosterone, primary hypogonadism, which is the least common, by the way, it's, yeah. it's often the first thought of, but it's the, it's the least common cause of, uh, of hypogonadism. Do you know what the base um, rate is? How common is it? You know, out of the, out of the total pie of hypogonadism, my, my guess would be 20%, uh, maybe less, uh, 10 to 20%, something like that. Uh, where you have men who've had chemotherapy and other mm -hmm. things that, you know, they're just, they're not going to produce testosterone uh, on their own, even if you increase the signals. Mm -hmm. um, and, and those men need testosterone. Right. Uh, absolutely. Exogenous testosterone. Um, but the majority of men actually have a deficiency of signaling mm -hmm. and, uh, or there's an underlying problem, an, uh, an untreated medical issue, uh, obesity, uh, lifestyle factors, sleep disorders, you know, maybe they have it from drinking, you know, alcohol. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a whole list of things of, 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 of bad, uh, uh, bad habits, mm -hmm. uh, that can cause hypogonadism. They don't exercise. That's right. uh, another common sedentary lifestyle. So 
you know, uh, exercising, improving your diet, losing some weight, uh, you know, those are always first line treatments. Right. And then, uh, and then treating the underlying prop medical issue, which might mm -hmm. be getting them to see their primary care doctor about diabetes or right. high blood pressure. Uh, and then, then I'll start thinking about, okay, what are the medicines we can supplement? Mm -hmm. And if it's a signaling problem, a secondary hypogonadism, the first, the first line is going to be, uh, clomiphene or euclomiphene. Mm -hmm. So those, uh, those drugs actually act to, uh, and, and as you mentioned, it's a, that's a SARM selective, uh, uh, estrogen receptor uh, modulator, CERM rather, mm -hmm. and those drugs can um, uh, can raise your LH and FSH uh, signals. Those come from the pituitary gland. LH uh, goes to the testicles to make testosterone. FSH goes to the testicles to make sperm. Mm -hmm. Globally, sperm and testosterone are the two functions of the testicle, which we are uh, trying to promote mm -hmm. uh, with the use of uh, of CERMs. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned testosterone and uh, sperm because uh, I'm sure you've seen a lot in the news and also in the academic literature as well. There's this huge decline in testosterone and sperm count, at least 50% in the last 50 years, apparently. Um, and you you outlined some of the factors that are responsible for it. Um, do you think there's anything else possibly that's going on? I know we've been talking about things like endocrine disrupting chemicals. Uh, so I'm kind of curious your take on that. Yeah, that's such a black box. I mean, with uh, with all the different uh, tech that's out there now, uh, uh, cell phones, uh, you know, all the things in our environment, uh, Wi-Fi signals. I mean, there there are so many things that people say. There's just so many radio waves around us now mm -hmm. that weren't that weren't around us 50 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and and how much of that is benign and how much of that is causing a problem we don't know um i've i've seen arguments about whether or not sperm counts are actually declining or if it's you know just a uh, statistical modeling uh but mm -hmm. i i do think in this in the modern world we live in that we have an increased number of exposures uh dietary environmental mm -hmm. occupational other chemicals things that we're putting in and on our bodies that mm -hmm. just weren't available weren't on the market uh, you know, back in, you know, the, the 19th century, sure. for example, uh, are we healthier now than then? I think we are. I mean, we've medicines come a long way, so there's probably some give and take right. where we're treating other medical problems. We're keeping, we're making people healthier and live longer, but you know, there's the, the American way of, you know, increasing sodas and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, saturated fats and, and all of the, the, um, you know, drive through food that wasn't available 50 years ago. Like this is, this is creating a, a crisis of metabolic syndrome among uh, a significant portion of American men. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the, the miracles of modern medicine is we've uh, eliminated a lot of infectious diseases post, at least pre pandemic, <laughs> uh, and replaced them with, unfortunately with lifestyle diseases, um, which is, you know, like uh, from our abundance, um, is there anything that you particularly counsel your patients on when it comes to reducing some of this environmental exposure or, or in terms of some of the lifestyle uh, stuff that, that may be like uh, controllable wins that they can achieve? You know, one of the things in, in medicine, when we say, like, why don't we talk about your, your medicine list and, and mm -hmm. people never talk about their vitamin supplements or any of the other things that they're putting in or on their body. Mm. you know, herbal supplements and things. And I think it's, it's important to look at, you know, everything that you're taking in a, in a pill form or in, a, in, in your diet. And, and that may be, that may come in a powder that you put in a shake mm -hmm. that may come in a, in a, in a can uh, that you drink and it's carbonated. And, and so you have to look at all of these things as potential factors that are endocrine disruptors. Mm -hmm. um, and in addition to just, your, your prescribed medicines. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about a medicine list, you know, and I'll often ask many follow-up questions about, you know, what vitamins you're on and, and other, other uh, things that, that aren't, aren't, necess aren't necessarily prescribed, but might be considered medicines by some people. Uh, and I think that's, that's a, a, an easy area to focus. Um, most patients know what they're, know what they're doing at home. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, people are using drugs. That's another thing, sure. uh, recreational drugs, um, which, you know, may not be causing a problem. I mean, I have no personal thing against marijuana, but we know that, uh, you know, and I, 
personally, I feel like it should be legal, but, um, but we know that it, it lowers testosterone, it mm. lowers libido, uh, it does cause fatigue. And, and so it's, it's good for a lot of things, but if you have low testosterone and erectile dysfunction and low libido and those type of symptoms, uh, and, and you're smoking weed every day, you know, that's should be on the short list of lifestyle things that you could adjust. I mean, alcohol is another big one. I mean, drinking two, two drinks a night may seem like no big deal, but, uh, that, that actually is going to, uh, suppress your, uh, your, your, your hormone system in a way that, that will make erections more difficult to achieve. Mm -hmm. Uh, libido will be a little bit lower. Uh, and so I don't pass judgment on patients who, who drink, but, um, on the other hand, if we're, if we're talking about these symptoms, I think we need to be realistic and look at, you know, these lifestyle, you know, exposures that patients have at home, uh, as, as first line treatments. Absolutely. I'm really glad you actually talked about alcohol and marijuana. Um, you know, I think so many people just look at it from a mortality standpoint that, you know, if you have moderate use, it may not necessarily reduce your quantity of life, but they underappreciate the effects on quality of life to your point, right? In terms of, you know, exactly. lowering their androgens, their libido, et cetera. Obviously, as a, a guy who cares about their quality of life, uh, they should absolutely think about sort of their use. Uh, and the amount and frequency of their use if they're trying to really optimize their health. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, I'm also glad you mentioned sleep because I think that was, uh, you mentioned it earlier in our conversation and it's an underappreciated topic. So when it comes to diet, exercise, and sleep, um, are there any particular recommendations or tips that you'd like to provide your patients in terms of making sure that they have optimal hormone function? I'm glad that you mentioned it like that because I always explain it to patients. That's the trifecta of health. Mm. diet, exercise, and sleep. Those are the three most important things that, that, that we have in our control over mm -hmm. our health. Uh, and so, you know, you need to make sure you're getting seven hours of sleep at night. I have a hard time doing it myself. We're all busy. Sure. Uh, but you have to have a wind down and you have to have a schedule and you need to set an alarm clock in the morning. And, and so the more, the, the more your sleep is scheduled, uh, the, the easier it will be to achieve that, recommended seven hours a night. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for when patients snore or they wake up and they feel tired or feeling tired in the afternoon, or especially if they're taking naps, mm -hmm. you know, those are red flags for a sleep mm -hmm. disorder. And I refer a lot of men with either low T or symptoms of low T, not necessarily low T by a level, mm -hmm. but maybe they feel like they have low T, their level is normal or near normal. Uh, yet if they have symptoms of, uh, of any sort of sleep disorder, I refer mm -hmm. for a sleep study mm -hmm. and, uh, and treatment of a sleep disorder an underlying sleep disorder is the best way to treat either hypogonadism or symptoms of hypogonadism. If they're, if that's one of the underlying causes, right? So, um, you know, and, and that is just, uh, you know, most patients don't, they would rather take a pill or have the easy way. But if you, if you can commit to making that sort of lifestyle change, uh, you are going to live longer and live healthier and you're going to have more energy and better sexual function and reproductive function because of it. So I think sleep is just, is critical. Absolutely. Um, you asked about I just wanted to, and... to double, double down on that. Cause I think it's an underappreciated point. There's so much undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea out there. Um, so particularly if you're, if you're obese, you know, you should absolutely get that evaluated if you're obese and you snore. Um, there are some folks though who have OSA and they're not particularly obese. Uh, it could just be your physiology. Um, and there's subclinical apneas as well, right? There, the, you may not need a CPAP per se, but there are a lot of like oral appliances that can, uh, shift your jaw and, and prevent snoring, um, that you can get done at a dentist or orthodontist if it's clinically indicated. So I really encourage guys to check that out and talk about that a lot. If your girlfriend or your significant other mentions you have snoring, or it sounds like you're, you're stopping breathing in this, in the middle of the night, uh, then that may be signs and symptoms along with what you said, the, the more sort of fatigue that you're experiencing need for napping, et cetera, are all important uh, red flags to check out. Those are all great points, Cam. Yeah. Thank you for hammering that home. Um, and then let's talk about the diet and exercise. Uh, every single patient knows they need to do it. Nobody does it. Uh, but um, is are there particular dietary or exercise recommendations that are optimal for, for testosterone? I mean, it's the elephant in the room when we're talking to a patient with, uh, with symptoms of low T or, or actual low T levels. 
uh, if they're obese, that mm-hmm. we need to be talking a lot about diet and exercise and not right. about medicines. Um, yeah, the, the first thing is no, uh, nobody's able to make a lot of headway on a diet without pretty close monitoring. Mm-hmm. And every, every diet, I think that successful is, is successful through calorie countings in some way. Mm-hmm. So being accountable, just like your household budget, if you don't know what's going in and what's going out, there's no way mm-hmm. to balance the budget. And it's the same thing with uh, caloric intake and exercise. And so it's a very simple equation. It's calories in and it's exercise out. And you either have to decrease your, your calories in, increase your cal- increase your output or both. And right. those are the ways to lose weight. And so as far as diet goes, um, I recommend just a, a balanced diet. So, um, uh, you know, eating healthy is, is primarily, at least in, in, in most American men, uh, is avoiding fast food mm-hmm. um, and avoiding late night snacking. Uh, so those are my first pointers. Um, you know, not taking second helpings at dinner, mm-hmm. uh, is another kind of easy one for, for some men to kind of just like say, say pause, you know, don't have that second helping. Right. Uh, there's, uh, uh, and then, um, as far as, uh, monitoring, I think it's important to have a scale, mm-hmm. uh, and, and monitor your weight. I mean, there's no way to control your weight if you're, if you don't know what your weight is. Right. So it's, it's amazing to find out that someone is trying to lose weight and they don't have a scale, you know? And so, and and so there, you know, um, smartwatches are, Mm -hmm. are available these days. It's very easy to, you know, to monitor your steps, to monitor your output, to monitor your weight with like a Bluetooth scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, and these are, I think some of the, the key initial steps, uh, that a patient can take, you know, not necessarily, what foods can I eat or can't I eat, but like get some of this framework in place and then start making some, uh, some slight changes in in behavior on like snacking second helpings and, and, you know, and eat a little healthier, like don't, you know, go to go out to eat, uh, every, every lunch, you know, pack a, pack a healthy meal from home. Uh, a sandwich is so much better than, than going to McDonald's, um, nothing against McDonald's, but, um, (laughs) Uh, and so those are my first pointers. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not an expert in this area, so I I do recommend, uh, men see a nutritionist, um, particularly overweight men can benefit from seeing a a bariatric surgeon. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've referred a lot of men for bariatric surgery and seen great results from that. And men can really turn their life around. Uh, I think add decades onto their lifespan, Mm -hmm. uh, through bariatric surgery. So something else that I'll think about and I'll mention and, uh, you know, and it, it's a decision that doesn't get made like in a short visit sure. with, uh, with a, you know, reproductive medicine doctor. Uh, but sometimes men don't go to the doctor and they, you know, they're only, they're only going to see, I might be the only doctor they see for three years. Right. And I feel like, you know, you're, we're here talking about the low sperm count or the testosterone issue, but like, you know, let's see the big picture sure. and make sure that, you know, you're going to be here to, to walk your, your, your baby girl down the aisle in 20 years, uh, or graduate college, uh, or whatever else there may be, because, you know, really obese men and unhealthy men are not living into their seventies. I mean, you will, you'll have heart disease that will set in, in your fifties and it'll be one chronic problem after the other. And it's just better to take care of it. I mean, if you're an obese man in your thirties or forties, like get ahead of that problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is, that is a serious issue. That is just a snowballing problem. And so, you know, once you start having arthritis and knee problems and ankle problems, you won't be able to work out and everything gets a lot harder. So, you know, just get ahead of that. Yeah. And you bring up such a great point. We know that um, losing weight, particularly if you're obese, helps improve testosterone levels. Have you found the opposite as well? That when people improve their testosterone levels, it's easier for them to lose weight and especially the central adiposity that they have? Yeah, absolutely. But this is a classic chicken or the egg here. Yep. I mean, they, they definitely interplay with each other. Uh, there's not necessarily like one's not going to solve the other always. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they do go hand in hand. Um, sometimes obese men aren't losing weight because their T is low and they have no energy. Mm-hmm. And so you can get energy through raising testosterone and that helps with, you know, motivation at the gym and motivation to lose weight and, you know, and seeing some progress in the sexual department. 
you know, helps with confidence and, and body image and these all play off of each other. So, um, I mean, I don't think it's a, it's a direct, you know, uh, you know, who, who knows what's the, the underlying issue. Um, but I, I wouldn't withhold treatment, uh, medical treatment for someone because they're willing to do lifestyle measures. I mean, it's a, it's a conversation and sometimes patients, you know, need both. They, they need medical therapy and some supplementation. Uh, They need a more active treatment approach in addition to lifestyle measures. But, you know, there's something to be said about putting the ball in the patient's court and giving Mm -hmm. and, and sort of, uh, giving them some of the tools to, uh, to, to help themselves uh, outside of like a prescription. Yeah. And so uh, I focus on, you know, the whole patient and the whole yeah. body uh, and think about it that way, rather than just writing a prescription. I mean, all doctors, me included, write a lot of prescriptions, Sure. but you know, I, I focus on these other, these other things as well. So patients know how to help themselves. Absolutely. And, and that's very much our philosophy at, at Maximus. And certainly mine as a behavior change uh, expert is we kind of throw the kitchen sink at people. Um, one of the things we found is, you know, when testosterone levels improve, so does energy levels. When you have better energy, you're more likely to go to the gym. And obviously when you're going to the gym, you're more likely to make other uh, beneficial uh, lifestyle changes. Your sleep improves. It's all a trickle effect. Um, and so, you know, the synergistic or the combination therapy uh, tends to work really well because uh, every single clinician who's work practice in the real world, uh, like you and I, we, we, we give lifestyle counseling and advice till we're blue in the face. And unfortunately, it's just very, very hard for patients to do, unless to your point, they really have structure and support. I mean, that's what my first company did. Omada essentially created online weight loss programs to help people um, prevent the conversion from pre-diabetes to type 2 diabetes and helped at this point 550,000 patients lose 5 million pounds. And as, the secret of it is really, as you said, wireless weight scale in your house, you weigh in every day. The research shows that daily weighing works in terms of accountability and then giving people group support, uh, health coaching, all of those things so that, you know, it's not just their individual motivation and willpower, which always fades, uh, but they have community support, resources, education tools. Yeah, they need everything because behavior change, especially in terms of maintaining it, is incredibly hard. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the, um, the pharmacological side of things. You mentioned serums such as uh, clomiphene and N-clomiphene. Can you educate our audience a little bit about the difference uh, between testosterone replacement, such as injectable TRT, and how that's different from testosterone restoration using these serums? I have an analogy for this, mm-hmm. which is if you found out that you were anemic, what would you do? Would you want to have a blood transfusion or would you want to like figure out why you're anemic and try to get your bone marrow to make more blood cells? It makes sense. So testosterone, not necessarily a bad thing. If you have no, if you have, you know, for example, if you go back to the anemia problem, if there was, if there were no cells making, making red blood cells, you'd have to have a transfusion. I mean, mm-hmm. if the, if the gas tank is empty, you got to put gas in the tank. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, that's not how you treat anemia. You, you say, okay, you, you're fatigued. You've got low red blood cell count. Like, are you bleeding or is there a bone marrow production problem? Mm-hmm. And if there, if there is, you know, we, we address that. And so um, I think it's important to address the underlying issue. So in the mm-hmm. testosterone restoration uh, uh, treatments, we're trying to restore natural physiology. Uh, we're trying to send uh, the, the the signal for the testicles to do their job. And if this, right. if they're not receiving the signal, then they're not going to make sperm and testosterone. Uh, and if they aren't going to make testosterone because there's some testicular problem like scarring or, you know, absent testicle, you know, they need testosterone. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not against testosterone, but I'm, I'm a little bit more sort of pro normal physiology and restoring mm-hmm. the natural uh, uh, male physiology rather than replacing it. Cause as soon as you replace it, your natural production actually goes down. Mm-hmm. Your testicles shrink. They stop making their own testosterone. They stop making sperm. You become infertile. Uh, and while you'll have natural, you'll have uh, levels circulating levels that are actually pretty high intratesticular levels go down when you right. take testosterone the opposite occurs when we do this, their restorative therapy. So mm-hmm. we increase the signals. And then what happens is the testicles kind of turn on. 
Mm-hmm. And so they'll, they'll actually get a little bit bigger sometimes if they become atrophic, they're going to start right. making testosterone and sperm. Uh, if fertility has been impaired because of this, their fertility will improve, their libido will improve and their, uh, and, and erections and other sexual function related to testosterone should improve as well. Yeah. That's such a great metaphor. Um, in terms of, you know, uh, if you think about it, TRT is almost an anti-fertility treatment. I think there's a paper in fact published that basically called it a male contraceptive, uh, and, uh, clomid and clomiphene are obviously pro-fertility treatments given that they've been used for that, um, reason for decades. Um, but to your point, I think the people, the point that people uh, underappreciate is, you know, a lot of people talk about bioidentical hormone replacement therapy as, as being like, oh, it's just like your natural testosterone. And it is chemically, but it's also shutting down your own production versus I would actually argue, uh, serms like clomid and clomiphene are actually much more natural in that they're stimulating your body's own natural production. So to me, that's actually a much more natural, uh, and, uh, you know, logical approach, uh, just like your anemia example. I agree that that's a misnomer, that bioidentical, because testosterone is a molecule that's identical in all of us. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, bioidentical just means we're giving testosterone. Uh, however, your bioidentical testosterone actually is made by your testicles. And so mm-hmm. if you were trying to, to improve your own bioidentical testosterone production, it wouldn't be through taking testosterone. It would be through testosterone restoration, yep. you know, either through these lifestyle measures and other things, or through pharmacologic treatment, like with, uh, with, uh, clomid or inclomiphene. And can you tell our audience a little bit about the difference between inclomiphene and clomid? I think a lot of people have probably heard about clomid. It's been on the market since 1967, uh, FDA approved originally for the treatment of women's fertility, but inclomiphene is obviously a newer pharmacological agent. Um, although they're very related. So can you tell us a little bit more? There's basically two isomers, uh, which is, that's kind of hard to explain uh, what an isomer is, but it's a molecule that's the same molecule, but it's kind of shaped differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and they actually trigger the uh, receptors a bit differently. Mm. And uh, and clomid actually, uh, or clomiphene citrate has uh, uh, two isomers mm-hmm. and, uh, is, and is comprised about equally of both. And then uh, inclomiphene is, is just the one isomer. And right. so uh, that's actually thought to be uh, a more pure form, I guess it's probably the mm-hmm. easiest way to, uh, to describe it. It's, it's a, it's a cleaner, uh, isomer that, um, that actually has, uh, uh, potentially better function or better, uh, efficacy rather. Yeah. And I'm curious in terms of your, whether it's from the research literature or your clinical experience, um, you know, what are the benefits, uh, that guys get when they optimize their testosterone using, whether it's in clomiphene or, or clomid? Well, number one, people usually feel better when they see that higher mm-hmm. number. You know, it's uh, there's a psychological boost to knowing that your testosterone is better. Um, the uh, uh, if testosterone levels are low, uh, they'll typically double or triple uh, with this th- therapy. Um, uh, and men with secondary hypogonadism, it won't do much for men with primary hypogonadism. But right. uh, and men with uh, with with the eighty percent uh, with secondary hypogonadism, they will get, uh, improvements in their, in their natural testosterone levels. Uh, sperm counts will typically go up. Uh, libido may go up. It doesn't always, um, that it's a bit variable, uh, the mm-hmm. sexual, uh, improvements that men get, cause it kind of depends on how bad was the problem in the first right. place. Um, but, uh, if it, if it was truly low, men will see improvements in their libido, uh, and their, uh, and their erections. Yeah. I believe I recall a paper that was saying, um, at least with clomid treatments, about 75% of, uh, patients are reporting an improvement in their erectile function. Um, and it, and it actually should be theoretically better within clomiphene. Um, someone very, I think True. beautifully described essentially like clomid is taking in clomiphene with an estrogen because the zooclomiphene isomer is an estrogen agonist actually, and may be responsible for some of the, the side effects that people experience. Um, That's right. So some of the sexual, sometimes if people take very high doses of clomid, they, they actually encounter sometimes sexual issues or mood issues. Uh, but that purified form essentially negates uh, a lot of those, that, that downside. Um, That's right. One of the other questions that we get very commonly, they're like, oh, well, I got to take a pill potentially long-term uh, for, for this. Is there any, is it safe? Is it safe to take long-term? And there, is there any 
long-term consequences in terms of tolerance or dependence? Yeah, I mean, most medicines don't have tolerance or dependence. We hear this all the time. You know, a good example is Viagra. People say, if I take Viagra for a little while, do I become dependent on it? And then I can't have erection without Viagra. Absolutely not. It's just like, do you get dependent with Tylenol and headaches? I mean, mm -hmm. no, the drug gets into your system, it gets out of your system. It does a job. When you stop taking it, mm -hmm. you your, your body still works the way that it did before the drug came on. Um, now, opioids are different. Those cause dependence. Um, but there's very few drugs that actually cause a dependent effect. Uh, and, uh, and this is not one of them. Um, uh, that being said, uh, I think with most hormone therapy, uh, there, it does make sense to, uh, to back off periodically and just make sure you still need it because the underlying cause may be gone. Your sleep may be better. Your stress might be better because you have a different job because you don't work at night anymore, but you know, your relationship may be better. Your partner may be more supportive uh, and therefore your sexual function may be better than it used to be. Right. So for all those reasons, uh, I think it's important periodically to come off. Uh, and so the timing is, I, I don't really know. I mean, it it's, depends on the patient, but you know, maybe every couple of years or a few years, uh, you know, because this is not something when we start it, we say, okay, well, you know, you'll be taking this when you're 90 years old. That's right. probably not the case. Um, this isn't blood pressure medicine. I mean, this is this is a type of medicine that, you know, causes a boost. You see a change and then you hope that uh, that the environment adapts and that ultimately you may not need it. Uh, mm -hmm. That's not going to be the case for everyone. I sure. mean, some people do stay on it long term. It is safe long term. Uh, we don't think that there's any any long-term implications negative uh, to, to, to your health. Um, but most patients don't like taking medicine and if they don't have to take it, wouldn't take it. And so if they've taken Clomid for a couple of years and uh, their weight is improved and that, you know, then it might be a good time to, to see if they still need it. Um, yeah. So I would, I would, you know, keep that as an individual decision yeah. for a lot of patients, but uh, consider after a few years, um, uh, just checking if you still need it. Yeah. I, one of the things I found is, is I, I find the the whole, the anti sort of medication stance is really more of a psychological one in that men feel mm -hmm. that, Oh, I'm dependent on this thing. And I think it depends if it's, if it's, if it's stigmatized in terms of having a disease, like I'm taking up, Oh, I'm a blood, I'm hypertensive and I need a blood pressure medication that I think people don't like the idea of it. But the way that we, you know, we, we've been trying to promote the brand is, look, it's health and performance optimization. Sure, if you have secondary hypogonadism, we'll treat it. But you don't necessarily need to have a, a huge problem. To your point, we treat symptoms, not numbers. And so I'm, I'm, my hope is that by reducing the stigma around pharmacotherapy, um, that people aren't going to necessarily uh, uh, not want to take it or, or want to come off of it just because of the notion of being dependent on a medication. Obviously, if they improve their lifestyle and they don't need uh, anything anymore, then wonderful. That's a success story in my, uh, in my opinion. Um, one other question that we get commonly is, well, if I have higher testosterone, does that uh, increase my hair loss or does it promote prostate growth, uh, in a negative way? For exogenous testosterone, it probably does. Mm -hmm. Um, when we are enhancing endogenous testosterone production with restoration, um, we don't see that very often. Yeah. Uh, so occasionally you might, I'm not, I wouldn't say that that's never going to happen. I mean, that's something that androgens can do. Uh, however, there's checks and balances with your natural production. And so when we use the restorative therapies, uh, mm -hmm. you're, you're not going to have the same level of side effects because there, the, the body, uh, checks and balances the level. It really doesn't ever get too high. Uh, and, uh, and so those problems that, that men will see on TRT are, are generally not seen in the restorative therapies. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think one of the reasons for that is, um, there's, there's a much higher increase in DHT when you do TRT. Um, and Absolutely. so the DHT to T ratio increases on TRT, but the, the studies on enclomiphene show that the DHT to T ratio actually does not increase on enclomiphene. So there's a concomitant rise and the balance actually gets maintained. So uh, as a result, theoretically, there should be much less issues with hair loss and prostate growth. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I know we're running up on time, so I don't want to keep you. Um, but was there anything that we didn't talk about that, that you wanted to talk about? Like, like, for instance, one fun question I like to ask is, is what do you see 
in the near future in terms of like latest and greatest uh, developments uh, when it comes to sort of the hormone optimization field? Well, that's a, that's a loaded question. Uh, the first <laughs> part enough. of that question, the first part of that question, I, I'm going to take that one. Great. Um, I think there's, uh, it's important for men to know that COVID-19, the infection mm. causes testicular dysfunction. And I think a lot of the vaccine hesitancy out there, um, there's a lot of reasons for it. And I mm -hmm. totally respect uh, patients to just decide when they want to be vaccinated. But I also think um, some men are, you know, don't think they're at a significant risk of hospitalization or death from COVID-19 and mm -hmm. don't necessarily want to take the vaccine or don't need it for that reason. And I would just urge men to consider uh, their testicular function as a, as, a, as a reason to become vaccinated mm -hmm. and to avoid COVID-19 infection because men who get COVID-19, their sperm counts drop to about mm -hmm. zero. Wow. Uh, testosterone levels decline tremendously uh, and men will be fatigued and, and have all kinds of hypogonadal symptoms uh, for months after a COVID-19 infection, particularly if they're older and have other medical comorbidities. Mm -hmm. uh, like if, for example, if you're hospitalized and uh, you know, even if with a, just a moderate infection, uh, you're very likely to suffer from erectile dysfunction and sexual dysfunction for a long period of time afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so in, in my clinic, I'm seeing a lot of post COVID-19 uh, sexual and reproductive problems. Mm -hmm. And I'm urging men who are, are not vaccinated and have not been infected to consider becoming vaccinated for that reason. And so um, right now, and in, in this day and age in men's health, um, that's something that I actually talk to almost every patient about. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, they realize, you know, let's, let's drown out all the political, you know, sure. nonsense about this. There's no reason a vaccine should, should have ever become politicized. And think about, okay, for me, why might I want to take it? You know, and it's, you know, it's, well, you don't want to die, number one, but if you're not scared of death or, or you know, you ought to, you ought to at least consider your, uh, your testosterone and your testicular function because, you know, COVID-19 infection will, will be a, dr a dramatic change for a number of months with your sexual function. I'm so glad that you say that. And I think it's an important, almost like public service announcement. I, I've been sort of beating the drum on social media in terms of the research showing the effects of COVID-19 infection on decreased testosterone and sperm count. And I, you know, the pushback that people, especially like if you're a healthy young man, man is like, well, my risk of mortality is low. And I'm like, it may be, but you should save your balls. And that's the thing that younger men care about. <laughs> so, you know, we can kind of understand how to psychologically influence guys. Uh, I think that's it. I think guys obviously want to maintain their testicular function and testosterone. And, and, you know, the science is, uh, is unfortunately compelling. Um, so if, if that's, if that's uh, not, not enough of a motivation, I don't know what is. Yeah, save your balls. I love it. That's a great, that's a great way to, <laughs> to, to end the interview. There you go. Well, Dr. Coward, thank you so much uh, for an incredibly informative and educational interview. I, I you know, I, I, especially as someone who kind of balances both academia and industry and appreciate the, you know, the position that you're in. Um, I, I think it's so important to share your, you know, scientific and clinical wisdom to the broader, you know, world, um, cause they can benefit so much from hearing from experts like yourself. So thank you very much for being an advisor. Thank you for sharing this podcast. Uh, uh, with the world. Um, and uh, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Cam. I really appreciate all that you're doing for Maximus and all the men out there that are going to really benefit from this service. So um, I look forward to working with you more. Thank you. Thank you.